This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're at. And uh, today, welcome to the Ian Weekly Show. And today I have Steve Eberlein with me from Ethos Preparedness. And today we're going to be discussing, you know, what is preparedness? And and one of the things that I find interesting specifically is that as emergency managers, um, we push the concept of community preparedness, community resiliency. And then once you start seeing people being prepared, you know, um, we, we think of the doomsday prepper and what is the difference between how do we make the difference between being prepared and then having the tinfoil hat on doomsday prep doomsday prepper that uh, National Geographic likes to show us. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Todd. How are you doing? I'm glad to be back here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been a long time since we've uh, last had you on the show. And when you had your TED talk of prepare out loud, which I think is a, is a fantastic um, uh, talk, by the way, if you guys have not seen it, please, please do. But Preparing out loud, you know, this we talked about a year or two ago. We talked about this three years ago. No, three years ago. it's been, yeah, it's been a while. It's been, but it was before we were live streaming these on camera, right? And but we still haven't moved that that needle, um, so much, right? Uh, no, I don't think we we really have moved the needle. Um, I feel like. I feel like COVID kind of showed us how hard it is to actually get people to quickly change their behavior and adopt new models that uh, follow common sense science. So, yeah, I feel like we're still kind of stuck, uh, but hopefully coming out of the woods for some some real behavior change. I mean, we're seeing panic buying of gasoline um, in the southeast, right? You're seeing videos. I mean, for Christ's sake, people are putting gasoline into plastic bags i mean and what what causes that behavior i mean that's the that's the opposite of preparedness as well right uh preparedness is about actually doing something before some something happens not panicking the moment that we see that there's a disruption in our normal day to day but it feels like the the american impulse i'm not sure if it's so much in other places bob just talk about america the american impulse is to panic at the moment that we see that there could be a disruption and to buy everything in the world for ourselves, to protect ourselves uh, from what we think is about to happen, which um, obviously that's, a, that's not a good model. Um, and it's, it's our go-to. We saw, we saw it with Colonial Pipeline yesterday. We've seen it with COVID. Uh, we see it every time that a hurricane comes through. We wait, we panic. We hoard, and it's really to the detriment to the wider community that we follow this model. Yeah, when I was a kid living in the Northeast, whenever we had a snowstorm, a nor'easter coming, or a blizzard, or and things like this, we'd see people going to the grocery store and buying like up all all the milk and the bread. And um, my and my dad, we had some, we had a deli, and we would have like when the store store would come, all the milk and the bread off the shelves like that. You know, it was just amazing to see that happen. Well, right. And and part of the reason that that happens is even as a person who's fairly prepared, 
when you see that behavior, let's say that, I don't know, a big winter storm's coming through Portland, Oregon, and, you know, get ready, and people start to run and to hoard things, I kind of think to myself, it's like, man, I wonder if we need to get to the damn store to get X, Y, and Z, because you see people doing that, and it kind of resets, at least for that moment, what is normal and what you should be doing, uh, whereas the place that you really want to reset the sense of what's normal is well before any disaster is even approaching and getting people to that level of readiness for disruption uh, before the threat is even evident. That's where that's where preparedness really lies. It's on a normal blue sunny day when it seems that we have nothing to worry about, uh, but we are ready for those disruptions that we've seen time and time again are completely inevitable in our society. So as emergency management professionals, those of us that should be out there singing the message of preparedness and readiness, um, what are we doing wrong, you know, that why people won't pick up that mantle and be prepared? You're not doing anything wrong, but it's, it's, about, it's about really recruiting other messengers who are outside of emergency management. That, that would be one of, my, uh, one of my go-tos when I talk to emergency managers. Because when you hear from an emergency, so let's just say as a, as a regular average person, I am working in HR at a mid-level company and the emergency manager or whatever safety professional is saying, you need to prepare for hurricanes and landslides and all these things. And I look at this person, I say, yes, you're telling me that because that is your job, right? That's your function. My function is to talk about sexual harassment in the workplace your job is to talk about preparedness in the workplace. You're just doing your job. And it doesn't necessarily resonate with me. What does resonate with people, I think, though, is when they hear stories about real disasters and actual preparedness from just regular everyday colleagues in their life. Because when I look at just my average colleague in a workplace and I see that they're actually taking action to prepare for a disaster or that they actually change their behavior in response to a disaster experience, I have a different reaction to that because behavior change doesn't happen very often. And when I see behavior changes amongst common day colleagues, that has a, that has a shift on what I believe is normal. So. As an emergency manager, I'd encourage you, yes, of course, keep parroting the message of preparedness, but you need to recruit other messengers other than yourself to help reinforce that message. No, absolutely. And I agree with you on that. And, and uh, you know, I guess to take a look at some of the community preparedness programs that we have here in the, in the United States, you know, along with uh, CERT programs and Red Cross and things like this, um, there's a lot of partners that you can partner up with. Uh, Tony Fargety from the UK says that they have the same issues in the United in the in the UK that we do here in the United States. So it kind of makes me feel a little bit better that it's not just a an American thing. It's a it seems to be an international problem. I'm glad it's not specific just to our culture. <laughs> so, you know, kind of going <coughs> excuse me, kind of going in the pipeline. You know, we like I said, we've seen the panic buying of toilet paper when COVID hit for whatever reason, toilet paper it was, um, you know, the clean supplies, I understand. Uh, we have the panic buy now of fuel um, in, you know, in the uh, Southeast, uh, so much so that from what I understand yesterday, the news reports said that Virginia is pretty much out of gas. Um, 
you know, the, these, these issues that are happening on, um, you have the panic buying before uh, hurricanes and or uh, uh, snowstorms. And I know, yes, the, using the term panic is, is probably uh, not the sense of that when we think of panic of people running around the chicken with a head cut off type thing, but it's purchasing stuff for no particular reason outside of everybody else is purchasing it. That's, that's the definition that we're using here. Um, and then we're, we're still talking about readiness programs here. The federal government is putting money into it. Um, local governments are putting money into it. But you're saying, hey, partner up with with other organizations to to get this message through, not necessarily coming from from the government. Now, this is kind of kind of rebranded. So now let me ask you this question. Should we and I know it's on your T-shirt, or but should we rebrand the concept of preparedness into readiness? Because, I mean, like it has preparedness gotten that bad name of the uh you, you know of the doomsday prepper again like we what we were talking about before oh there's a lot to unpack there and yes i am wearing a ethos preparedness <laughs> shirt so but i will say there is there is a problem with the word preparedness i feel like the word preparedness is like it feels like holding your breath when you're going underwater it's it feels like something that you can't sustain forever I personally, I prefer the word resilience. Resilience Mm -hmm. is like acceptance, not only that things can happen, but they in fact will happen. And it gives you a vision of where you want to be after that thing happens. You want to bounce back. So I feel like resilience is the vision, right? Preparedness is like holding your breath. Oh no, something's going to happen. But resilience kind of, that idea of resilience provides a visionary goal of where you actually want to be. One thing that I'd like to see, especially amongst businesses, is I'd love to see CEOs of businesses, one, get involved actually in their resilience programs, but also start painting a picture of where a company wants to be after the disaster, right? Right now, the message is, you know, stock up on water and get your earthquake toilets ready because anything can happen. But I want to see us get to a point where we're starting to say, listen, this is going to happen and will likely happen to your in your lifetime. And here's where I want you to be after that event happens. And here's where I want us to be as a business after that happens. Let's accept some of these disasters as an inevitability and plan for where we're going to be as a society, as a company, as a community afterwards. We need an optimistic vision, not just holding our breath and getting ready for the inevitable, but a visionary, optimistic idea of where we could be if we take steps now for the aftermath of that event. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And it's almost like like a company, like a resilience plan, I suppose, for lack of a better term would encompass like a recovery plan, including the preparedness side of it. So it's a little bit more uh, robust than just a, a single plan. Um, I, I don't have the name because this is LinkedIn user um, on my on my comment section, but it says most of what EM does is to prepare the organization they work for, which is essential, especially for organizations that serve communities in disaster. But there's a little very investment in actually preparing individuals and communities. And it's hard to prove effectiveness and to justify that to policymakers. Um, yeah, no, it's a good statement. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think the idea is 
uh, you know, Brian Colburn, who's the producer uh, of the show, um, he's in the background over here. You'll see him every once in a while I pop in. You know, he really taught me a lot, like back in, in the day. You know, Brian's background is in sales, and he says that everybody's a salesman. And in the sense that as emergency managers, we really need to sell as well to not just the public, uh, as, but to our, our leadership as well. And I know that you, you kind of do that um, on, on your job as well. What is it like to sell preparedness uh, to C-suite uh, members? Okay, so the, the person who wrote in, he brings up a really interesting comment. Um, and it's something that I've seen in talking to resilience managers as well. Your C-suite wants to see ROI, right? And actually, Disaster Recovery Journal recently wrote an article that was interesting that was basically saying, listen, we're going to have a really hard time proving ROI on personal preparedness. There's not a really good case study out there that says, hey, company X uh, prepared its people to the hilt at work and at home, and then this thing happened, and they emerged while company why uh, went under. There's not that really great case statement to bring to people. So one of the things that I feel like we need to start identifying, especially vis-a-vis uh, the C-suite, is what are the other benefits that come with company preparedness even in the absence of a disaster? Let's, let's just pretend the disaster is not going to happen for 50 years. What are the benefits that we can see right now from actually getting people uh, to prepare? I think there are a few things to point to. Um, for one, people are worried about disasters. Wherever you are, if you're in Georgia, you should be worried about tornadoes. If you're in San Francisco, you should be worried about earthquakes. And when a company gets involved, uh, not just in corporate preparedness, but also in personal preparedness, it's a way to actually listen to the concerns of your people. It's a way to show that your company actually cares not just about the bottom line, but about the well-being of its employees and the concerns, the well-founded uh, concerns of their employees. That's engagement, right? This, I feel like personal preparedness at the workplace is an important way to um positively engage with the workforce in a completely uncontroversial topic, right? Disasters impact everyone. Everyone cares about their families. This is an easy way for a company to say, we care about you. We care about your family. We want you to come back and be a productive member of this workforce. We support your personal preparedness. That's, that's a win. That's an easy win that everyone can get involved in. So even even without that ROI of that classic case study of the, the company that survived because of pre preparedness, I don't think we necessarily need that. This is pr personal preparedness and workplace preparedness is um, just an easy way to speak to the average person's concerns. But then there's also looking at the C-suite, um, there's also the a chance to go kind of to the negative side as well, which is what is the reputational risk of doing nothing? So if every day you wake up and read the San Francisco Chronicle and you learned that the probability of an earthquake in the area is that much more likely, and you haven't done a robust job of preparing your workplace and 
and securing bookshelves and engaging your employees in drop cover hold drills and supporting their home preparedness because you have a work from home work base now. What if you do nothing? What is the reputational risk to your company when it's been obvious to everyone who's watching that this is an inevitability? So I feel like there are positive ways to engage the C-suite and also kind of negative. There's a real risk here, uh, not just at lawsuits, but reputationally. Steve, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the perception of what government should be doing uh, for people compared to personal responsibility. Sounds good. The Outer Limit Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of injuries often seen during austere times. From minor injury on an outdoor adventure with your family to your team responding to a major traumatic event, Outer Limits Supply has the kits to manage most situations, providing practical, user-friendly first aid kits that anyone can use. Enter EM Weekly, all capitals, at checkout and save 20% off your total purchase. Go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. That's outerlimitsupply.com. Power outages can happen at any time. Is your community prepared? The PowerUp solar power charging trailer can be used to address the need for temporary power for your community. In addition, the PowerUp solar power charging trailer can provide a platform to support your public information and community resiliency outreach efforts throughout the year to educate and inform people about the need to always be ready. For more information, visit PowerUpConnect.com. That is PowerUpConnect.com. We all know emergency management is dynamic. What you need to know and do can cover all kinds of fields and change on a dime. When choosing a partner, you want someone just as dynamic to help you keep up. The Mid-Atlantic Center for Emergency Management Public Safety is just that. A FEMA partner and one-stop shop for college academics, custom training and consulting. They cover it all and bring you the best of each. So whether you're looking to start your degree, go back to school, train your people, or anything in between, they're here in training. We all know emergency management is dynamic. What you need to know. Worn by law enforcement, fire, and EMS professionals for a generation, 511 apparel and accessories are built to provide unmatched reliability and performance when it matters most. From no-melt, no-drip apparel to task-specific EMS gear and their patented patrol duty uniform along with duty-specific footwear. 511 Public Safety Gear provides superior power, mobility, and versatility in harsh and unforgiving situations. Precision engineered from modern materials and crafted with input from the end users in the field. And you can count on the craftsmanship, quality, and utility of 511 first responder apparel and accessories. Your job is hard enough. Don't settle for good enough. 511 Public Safety Gear gives you the edge you need to respond effectively. heard them here on the Ian Weekly Show because without them, we could not bring you the content that we do. So, Steve, before we went on break, we're talking about the idea of the, the government responsibility versus personal responsibility. And um, do you think that's part of the problem that we have 
uh, with messaging that we are, uh, we as government, right, emergency management, are pushing uh, the message to the individual community members that they should be ready, prepared for disaster. But yet when a disaster um, happens, they're looking towards government for solutions. So resilience, I think, is the perfect marriage between mitigation and personal preparedness. As far as the government's responsibility, I feel like the government's top responsibility is mitigation. Right, let, me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I'm saying here in Portland, Oregon, big earthquake zone, uh, about 90% of our, of our state's liquid fuel is sitting on this shelf right above the Willamette River. And geologists say there's about a 100% chance that this entire fuel hub will fall into the Willamette River, depriving us of about 800 million gallons of fuel in the event of an earthquake. Can I, Steve Eberlein, do anything about that? No, absolutely not. Can the government do something about that? Yes, that's a mitigation effort. The things that are outside the power of individuals to do, that needs to fall to the government. And that totally makes sense. However, can the government uh, feed my cats when the bridge goes down? Uh, absolutely not. We can only expect so much of the government. The places that are impossible to reach, which are the tiny recesses into our homes, that is, I feel, a personal responsibility, a personal preparedness responsibility. Um, so it's the marriage of the two. There are things that I can't do that the government needs to, and there are places that the government can't reach, which falls within my jurisdiction. But I do also feel like the government needs to be straight with us about what we should re what we should expect as a response time. I know a lot of places in the United States still say that 72 hours of preparedness is, is going to be sufficient for uh, all the forces to start coming in and distributing the aid that we need in a major disaster. I question that. I question that given how complex uh, emergencies and disasters have become. Um, I'm glad that Oregon, Washington, and Montana, and Hawaii have actually gone to two weeks of preparedness as the guideline uh, for individuals because I feel like that sets a more realistic measure for what we should expect uh, from federal and local emergency responders. So uh, again, from, I guess one of the LinkedIn you just uh, chimed in and says, um, how do you think preparedness messaging and training can be more effective versus the one size fits all approach? And how can we make it more focused on individual needs, including vulnerable populations? That's a great question. Mm, it is a good question. So as far as, as far as effectiveness, I feel like uh, we need to get away from all hazards preparedness. Really? Yes, I do. So I do believe that we need to be ready for all hazards. I'm not coming on and saying we shouldn't get ready for all hazards. But I'm saying that I don't think if I go to the average person and say, you know what, Phil, I think you need to be ready for landslides and bioterrorism and nuclear fallout and hurricanes and earthquakes and liquefaction and massive cyber attack power outages. I don't think that the average person, including myself, can actually wrap their mind around that. What I think is probably the most effective way to reach people is to hit them at the vulnerability that they are most worried about, which is definitely going to be uh, region by region. If you're in 
if you're in Washington, you should be worried about what you should be worried about wildfires and, and earthquakes. And that's where the focus should be. And the, I'd say the same for most of the West Coast. And as we teach people to get ready for uh, wildfires and earthquakes, we also encourage them to have the tools that will, in fact, make them ready for all hazards. So we can make people ready for all hazards by feeding them a comprehensive preparedness for that disaster that they are most worried about. Does that make sense, Todd? No, absolutely. You know, John Constable chimes in and says, government needs to address the items that are uniquely positioned to deal with, aka, you know, zoning, building codes, infrastructure. Um, and as individuals, we need to prepare ourselves and family for at least the 72 hours. And, and John, I, I agree with you, except for I'd, I'd like to see the 72 hours go for at least two weeks um, as well. Uh, I've been preaching that for uh, since Katrina occurred. And then um, <laughs> John says, isn't that the purpose of the thyra analysis that every EMA engaged in? Y- yeah, I guess you're, you're right, John. It is the purpose of the thyra. Um, no. And also as far as messaging, I think, I think one of the tricky things is to insert that messaging within an existing community that already looks to each other for support. So I think one of the difficult things about any disaster preparedness messaging is we're throwing it out onto the general public, hoping that individuals and households will take that in. Whereas if we can actually insert that messaging within an existing community, we might be able to create conditions for that messaging to start to reverberate and echo within it so that they are actually teaching them each other preparedness once it is adopted by a few. Right. That, that's part of the reason I focus so much on workplace preparedness. Uh, if you can change the tune within a workplace and you have the CEO talking about preparedness, you've got people actually doing drop cover hold drills, you've got uh, people seeing each other take those actions, then we start teaching each other preparedness, which I think is a much more likely way to get the message out. I, I feel like it's a matter of who we actually respond to. When I, I don't have a personal relationship with FEMA. I don't have a personal relationship with the Red Cross, even though I worked there for 10 years. Um, but I do have a personal relationship with my coworkers. I do have a personal relationship with my brother-in-law. If I see my coworkers change a behavior and take on a new action, this is my community of belonging. I'm much more likely to change my behavior based on seeing others that I resonate with change their behavior than I am to change my behavior based on an agency telling me that I should do so. I feel like it's a tough marketing lift um, to reach the general population. I feel like it's a lower lift to actually create a change within organizations so that they can own that message. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny you say that because, uh, you know, I've been in a room when the earthquake occurs and uh, everybody looks at each other to see if, they, if the next person is going to go duck cover and hold on, right? Because they don't want to be the first one going underneath the table. That's it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny. But once the first person goes under, um, everybody starts. I was in a room full of emergency managers when we had an earthquake and we all did that. But, um, you know, kind of going back on messaging. You Can, know, I one of things... that, Can I oh, speak sure, to that, Todd? Can I speak to that for a yes, second? Because, it, because I'm... I am passionate about earthquake drills for that very phenomenon. 
Um, I'm going to go on a tangent real quick because okay. this is such a good topic. So the importance of earthquake. See, so what we tell people about earthquake drills is that, well, you know what? Uh, during an actual earthquake, your amygdala is going to take over and it's the most reptilian explosive part of your body. And you need to train your amygdala to do the right thing so that you actually follow the right behavior during an earthquake. I think that that's like what emergency managers have been taught about the psychology of drills and things like that. I feel like the importance of emergency drills, be it fire drills or earthquake drills, is about training the social response. Because what happens is just what you said. It's like, if I go under the table and I say, hey guys, we're doing an earthquake drill, your first response is to look to the person next to you, to find your manager in the room, to see what they are doing because they are setting the tone for what you believe is normal. Me going under the table as the first person is not considered normal. You look to other people to see what they're going to do. When you do a successful earthquake drill and actually get each person to go under the table, what you've actually established, and it's awkward for everybody, is a new sense of normal. You've given people permission to take that awkward step that they normally would not. And that same concept applies to preparedness itself. Do you feel like it's normal to have earthquake toilets? Do you feel like it's normal to have 14 gallons of water per person in your home? Maybe not. But if you see people in your life, your brother-in-law, your manager, your coworkers actually doing that, they reset your sense of normal. FEMA can't reset our sense of normal and not many places can. The only people who can reset what we think is normal are the people that we know, like, and trust. That's why earthquake, or uh, that's why workplace preparedness is so important. There are not many places that can change their culture on a dime and reset what the average person in that workplace considers normal and something that they would take back to their home. You got to change the environment to change the individual behavior. Absolutely. I'm going to, I want to make a statement here real quick, and then I'm going to go into another question. One of the, um, Listeners has posted this because it's really good and it's really apropos. So one of the things I did when I was working as at the city emergency management level is um, I reached out to my Lions clubs, the the Qantas, um, the Rotary, um, and the Chamber of Commerce, the some of the other uh, the Moms clubs, things like this, and working with them and inviting them into part of the the planning process for the city and preparedness type of things, invited all of those people, those organizations to our preparedness expos and things and really becoming, having them become cheerleaders because at the end of the day, you're right because they have more influence on their individual members than, than I could do um, at any one given time. But um, one of the LinkedIn users asked, what do you think about needs-based approach to preparedness? This is individuals could have plans for immediate life-threatening events, earthquakes, tornadoes, et cetera, but other preparedness efforts would be focused on meeting basic needs, such as food, water, transportation. Uh, because you don't prepare for a disaster, you prepare for how it affects you. Absolutely. That is a great statement. You don't prepare for the disaster. You prepare how it, for how it affects you and how it affects you reveals your vulnerabilities. Oh man, that is a, I, I wish I knew who said that because I want to give that person hundred percent credit for it. That's, that is beautiful. That is a beautiful statement. And one of the, um, so thinking about needs-based preparedness, um, one of the, the things that I feel like we haven't seen enough are 
people with specific vulnerabilities talking personally about how they have prepared for a specific disaster. But so the light bulb for this for me is I've got a friend who's type one diabetic. We're in an earthquake zone. We're expecting weeks, if not months, without electricity. He's insulin dependent. And I asked him, it's like, what in the hell are you going to do? He's like, tell you what, I've got solar powered refrigerators. I've got several months worth of testing strips. I've got uh, a stock. I got my doctor to make me a like bulk <laughs> a prescription of insulin. He has already done X, Y, and Z. There are thousands of diabetics in any given place in the United States, and probably the best person to reach people with specific vulnerabilities are the people who have already prepared based on their knowledge of that vulnerability uh, for the disasters that they are most concerned with. So I feel like, um, again, getting to the gain away from here's the disembodied advice for what you should do. The most powerful advice you can get is from someone who is in very similar shoes, who's taken robust action. So it's not just the common sense advice of here's what you should do. If you're in these sets of shoes, it's here's an example of a person like you who has, who believes that preparedness can create the best outcome. Here's how I did it. And in fact, we, we created a Facebook group. Um, it's called the Red Fora Community of Preparedness, where we are trying to give voice to people of um, all different vulnerabilities and prepare, preparedness circumstances um, and finding experts who can answer some of those more specific questions that seem to fall out of uh, the mainstream of what we're addressing as uh, preparedness professionals. Absolutely. Hey, so we're coming down to the end. Um, I want to give you a quick chance to just kind of talk about ethos preparedness and, and, and what you're doing. But that being said, what are three things that um, you say an, an emergency manager should be doing to help the community prepare right now? And how does ethos fit into that? Oh, good question. So three things an emergency manager should be doing uh, to help the community. Uh, for one, recruit prominent voices into the conversation who have no background in emergency management whatsoever. Um, the expert emergency management voice, there's a place for that in, um, in grounding the advice that we get. It's trusted, but we also need a prominent voice that people are willing to listen to. That's, again, that's why I, I talk very often about Let's find the CEOs of prominent companies and bring them into the conversation. Finding the people that people want to listen to and are willing to listen to and getting them to parrot the message that needs to be heard is an important way to, uh, uh, to, change, to change the dialogue. Uh, for two, we need to see real people taking real preparedness steps. Uh, checklists are great. Um, guides are great, but the power of seeing regular people um, actually prepare, uh, people that we can relate to, people of different backgrounds, of different abilities, um, we need, everyone needs an example. We, we relate to people, right? People relate to people, people influence people, and finding those right people to be uh, 
to be an example uh, can be absolutely powerful. Uh, where does where does ethos preparedness fall into all this? Um, speaking for my own own side of the house, uh, we're trying to change uh, we're trying to change workplace preparedness culture, pure and simple. We want to be the secret weapon for especially uh, workplace emergency managers. You are in there day in and day out trying to bring resources to people to prepare to try to convince the C-suite uh, that more mitigation is needed. And we're here to help. Um, what I do is I speak to employees. I'm, I'm the regular guy who I think can convince the average person to go from zero uh, to prepared. And we also have the supplies to help people get prepared at home and the office. What we really want to do is be a continuous resource from your home to your car to your workplace and Furthermore, we want to change the culture of your workplace because every prepared person needs a community that is celebrating preparedness. Otherwise, just like any habit, it's hard to keep up without com that community. Workplaces are a good community for that. Absolutely. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thank you for being here and, and you know sending the message. And, and all the comments today, they were freaking spot on. I love it. And I'm looking forward to uh, to hear more from the community as well. That being said, hey, everybody, if you have not subscribed or or follow us here uh, at Ian Weekly on your favorite podcast player, please do to uh, so and share this information with your friends, family, coworkers, because, you know, love to grow this community even bigger. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. Uh, Instagram, and don't forget Crisis Cafe. That's crisis-cafe.com to include the emergency management community as well. So until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated.